0: Children age 4 through grade 5 are welcome to go to the basement for Children's Church. As you will note in your bulletin, this morning we have a multi-voice sermon. Those sharing this morning are Ernie Hess, Jean Kilheffer Hess, and Jacob Lehman. And uh, there will be a brief musical interlude between each person sharing, offering us time to reflect on what we've heard.
1: So welcome Ernie.
0: I grew up on a farm southwest of Willow Street. My father ran a mixed farming operation which included the breeding and raising of hogs for meat. When the hogs reached market weight, Uncle David Thomas, Becky Knowles' father, along with her oldest brothers would come from New Danville with their truck for five or six hogs to prepare for the weekly Lancaster market. We cousins enjoyed the most hilarious times of our childhood as we along with our dads tried to get those unwilling hogs from the stable in our barn onto the Thomas' truck. In those days before growers received premium prices for grass-fed meats, we pastured our hogs for part of their growing cycle. One summer, our hogs broke through a newly constructed fence and roamed over neighboring farms for several days. As we received word of their whereabouts, we'd track them down and return them to our barn one by one. We never accounted for all of them, however. Perhaps some of the neighbors enjoyed wild, local, grass-fed pork for their Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners that year. Later, I learned that one of the neighboring farmers informed my father that our stray hogs had damaged his crops my father asked him the value of his loss. And my father then wrote a check for twice that amount and mailed it to the neighbor. I don't ever remember my father giving an explanation or interpretation, certainly not a scripture text, for why he did that, sending the check for twice the amount of the loss. But it's clear to me that this simple act of generosity on the part of my father flowed out of an internalized commitment to the principle that Arlene read in Romans 12:18: "If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." This text from Romans 12 calls us not merely to a passive response to evil and injustice, but to an assertive, positive counter response when evil is done against us. I believe we could extend this same reasoning for evil and injustice in general, not only that which may be aimed at us personally or individually. Note the active verbs that were scattered through this Romans 12 passage. In verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 20, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If thirsty, give them something to drink. Verse 21, overcome evil with good. Four years ago this month, Following a disputed national election, the country of Kenya erupted into a state of chaos for several weeks. Persons from differing tribes and political loyalties who had lived peacefully as neighbors for years suddenly turned against each other. Threats, tortures, rapes, and killings turned the nation into a culture of fear. Even persons who had worshiped together in church On a Sunday, within the week following, turned against each other. Thousands of persons fled their homes for safety. Into this chaos, Claire and Beth Good were sent as representatives of Mennonite churches in North America to listen to the people and to represent our solidarity with them in a time of intense suffering. Claire sensed that God brought Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, which Arlene just read for us, to him as the scripture to be shared in meetings with church representatives in Kenya. And so, in these meetings, after reading the text, Claire would ask the leaders to discuss what God might be calling them to do in the current situation of intense anger, hostility, and violence recognizing the scripture called them to respond positively to persons from enemy groups. They said, but if they did that, they would be misunderstood, perhaps killed if they reached across tribal boundaries to minister to other people. But they agreed to consider the challenge further. Claire left relief funds that he had brought with him with this instruction, quote, assist your people who have been adversely affected by the recent political violence and please take some of the funds and reach across political and tribal boundaries and assist people from other communities also." End of quote. The churches began to distribute food in their communities. They served meals in their homes and churches and welcomed persons in need regardless of their tribe or political affiliation. They rescued and ministered to injured persons across tribal boundaries. These acts became significant points of turning towards stability and peace throughout the country. In a summary report, Claire later wrote that, quote, Relationships were restored because spirit-empowered believers assertively pursued their enemies with deeds of love. They did more than refuse to retaliate. They embraced the enemy. End of quote. How well is East Chestnut Street doing in fulfilling this purpose of equipping one another to live peaceably? and generously. while well, evidences of generosity are easy to find. The rush of responses to almost any need announced on listserv. The hours of volunteer labor to ministries in our community, such as our rental house, our reaching out to the McCaskey faculty, our Monday evening gatherings, etc. On a personal level, Lois and I received a sheets card placed anonymously in our church mailbox at a time when we were having some additional expenses. All of you could list your examples. Since modeling a desired behavior is one of the best ways to encourage it, our congregation deserves commendation. But I wonder how much we've been tested on the parts of this text that call us to respond kindly and generously to enemies. Do we have enemies? As our nation plunges into the chaos of another election year, are there parallels here with Kenya's situation in 2008? Perhaps the closest we can come to identifying someone as an enemy would be uh, those persons whose political decisions and views seem so wrong from our perspective. Are there creative ways we might at least be a voice for overcoming the evil in our system with good over these next 10 months? And I'm looking at Barry here on the front row and can't resist commending Barry for his efforts at being a voice in some of these kinds of things. Thank you, Barry. I admit that I have more questions than proposed answers. In a recent interview of John Paul Ledrock, Mennonite peacemaker in many, many nations around the world, on American public media, it was pointed out that, quote, "...seeking to understand those who do not understand us," end of quote, "...is an important strategy in bringing together individuals or groups that are in opposition." whether in addressing our political scene or on more personal and individual levels, when we find ourselves facing an enemy, maybe that at least is one commitment we could all make as a step towards overcoming evil with good. We will seek to understand those who do not understand us.
2: I noticed something when I looked at the four lectionary scriptures for today. I used an online Bible resource to take the specified sections of scripture and place them side by side. There's plenty of detailed, if sometimes nebulous, advice about living peaceably and generously, such as, bless those who persecute you, and do not claim to be wiser than you are, or, it is well with those who deal generously and lend. Fine, all useful, quite important. But when I took a step back, I noticed something different. There's a lot of eating going on. In the Luke passage, Jesus is at a banquet and he starts talking social class. In Acts, the early Christians are so invigorated to be part of the Jesus movement that they eat together regularly and share everything. In the Romans piece, there's banqueting going on, but this time with enemies, people you've got history with. That could be pretty awkward. Earlier in Psalm 112, it mentions a family whose right relatedness with others has resulted in successive generations experiencing, quote, wealth and riches in their houses, unquote. I see an image of people at home sharing healthy food in abundance. Table fellowship, the very ordinary act of sharing food and conversation with others. Might this be the locale from which we can learn from each other how to live peaceably and generously? I remember the first time I realized that I had a whole lifetime of meals stretched before me that I would have to get for myself. This was pretty shocking. The need to eat is very ordinary and insistent. It's a regular part of life. One of the things I love about our small group is that our interaction is anchored with a simple meal. We've been meeting for several years and we've settled into a fairly comfortable pattern. We gather and we catch up over beverages and hors d'oeuvres. We heed the call to the table and each share the dish that we brought. We continue in leisurely conversation into the evening. The food is good, the conversation is lively. It's like salve for the soul. Sometimes we laugh, Occasionally, we ask each other hard questions, and always we tell stories. What we're really saying when we set aside that one evening a month for each other is let's journey together. It's one of the ways of being generous as a receiver and also as a giver. Now, the table fellowship and the learning together that I just described happens within the same social class, the same congregation. We have much in common. Jesus' advice to the one throwing a banquet in Luke 14 is to give all this partying with your friends a break. And be sure to look beyond your usual circles for dinner guests. And not just in the upwardly mobile direction. Jesus specifically says relatives and rich neighbors, they should be some of the first ones to take off your invite list. Who do you eat with regularly? And why? This is a question I've been asking myself. Now, undoubtedly, when we talk of crossing social lines and sharing food, someone will mention the Monday night meal served with a citywide free invitation each week in our church basement. I've attended this meal about a dozen times in the last five years, and depending how I'm dressed and who is serving the meal, the serving staff assume me to be living in various degrees of either comfort or desperation. (laughs) On the evenings when I'm assumed to be homeless, I do my best to ignore the seemingly patronizing smiles and overly eager, out of the blue assertions, that only make sense if the speaker has assumed certain things about me. Like the evening I was close to the front of the line as we moved into the basement area, and a middle-aged man Uh, turned from preparing tables, and said to me, in a tone that adults usually reserve for small children, you'll get a warm meal here tonight. What was I supposed to say to that? Duh. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Mister, you're the best. Okay, I'm getting a little snarky, and I realize that how I responded to this interaction says something about my sensitivities as well. But when I reference sharing food and eating together as a practice that can form us as generous and peaceable people, I want to be clear that while a table offers a great place for sharing and learning, it can also be the arena for the same old assumptions, oppressions, and power plays that put those artificial lines between those with less and more money, with weaker and stronger support networks, and with fewer or more physical and mental abilities. I don't really understand Jesus' reference to inviting people with less resources to share a banquet for the express reason that they can't pay back the inviter. I'm assuming there's some kind of radical egalitarian message here that I just don't quite understand. I'm just concerned that when we go about serving others who we perceive to have less than us, we may end up doing harm instead of building those healthy connections and learning something new. With that balancing caution, I invite us to ask ourselves, who am I eating with and why? Around what tables can I be formed into someone who lives peaceably and generously within my household and with the broader world?
1: In the passage from Acts, Luke talks about the daily habits of the early believers and the structure of the church. The early believers devoted themselves to four things, to the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship with one another, to communion, and to prayer. They worshiped with each other in the temple and ate together on a daily basis. They shared all of their possessions with one another, and they provided for all of those who were in need. One reason this passage stuck out to me was because it reminded me of my mom's experience growing up in the Mennonite Church. My mom grew up in Reba Place Fellowship in Evanston, Illinois, which my grandfather helped found. Reba Place takes this Acts passage quite literally and bases itself around it. My mom grew up in a church in which every church member shared all of their possessions and pooled all of their money and ensured that everyone who was in need was taken care of. My mom lived in a house with 18 other people and ate all of their, and everyone ate all of their meals together. And every Friday, the whole community would get together for a meal and fellowship. Now, I'm not saying that all people need to follow this road if they want to try to live out this passage. Each person needs to follow through on how they feel the scripture is leading them. There are many ways to live out this passage that I see being exemplified at, each, at East Chestnut Street. I see our church providing those for a need, and how we do provide community meals, housing support, and financial aid for those living in Lancaster City. I see our church having fellowship together in the bread and soup meals we sometimes have after Sunday school, and in small groups within our church. However, I think we as a congregation should keep striving to further exemplify this passage to the best of our ability, such as trying to get to know the people that come to our community meals and others that our congregation works with and develop closer personal relationships with them. And also try to develop closer personal relationships within our own congregation. This will equip us to live more peacefully and generously with each other and the water community.